I'm Daryl Wanza Serrano. I'm Ariana Ruiz. I'm Renee Rocha. And this is Imagining Latinidades. We are back after a long hiatus uh, and just for a few episodes for y'all. A lot has gone on over the last year of this tragic pandemic and nationwide tumult over the issue of uh, police brutality and continued anti-Black racism. We hope that our listeners have remained safe, healthy, uh, and justice-oriented in these challenging times. As for Renee, uh, Ariana, and I, we've seen some big changes, too. Uh, Renee is back to being director of Latina, Latina, Latinx Studies at Iowa, uh, the position that that I held last year. Uh, Ariana is now assistant professor of Chicanx Studies um, at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, And I've moved back to Texas as associate professor of communication and core faculty of Latino, Latina, and Mexican-American studies at Texas A&M University. So now, as we're finishing up our programming, Imagining Latinidades uh, is a multi-institutional effort spanning Iowa, A&M, and UC San Diego, which is really exciting for us. Um, and if Renee and Ariana were, were on this recording today, too, they would express that excitement as well. Uh, today, we have a very special program planned for you. Uh, a year ago, we were supposed to host my guests here today uh, for a one-day symposium in Iowa City on the topic of Latina, Latino, Latinx cultural citizenships, and popular belonging. Um, After having addressed issues surrounding formal citizenship and national belonging in the fall 2019 semester, this one-day symposium was supposed to bring subject area experts, our guests today, uh, to discuss modalities of popular belonging, such as television, sports, music, literature, and more, uh, in Latina, Latino, and Latinx contexts in the U.S. Alas, that symposium, symposium was the first thing we had to cancel due to the emerging coronavirus pandemic. Uh, so after Ariana uh, and I had a chance to start settling into our new locations after our moves this year, we realized that one of the best ways we could make up the symposium was with a couple of episodes of this podcast. Uh, So in this episode, we'll be sticking to the subject matter of the symposium. Um, After I introduce our speakers, um, each of them will have a chance to offer short opening statements, and then we'll proceed into some questions about cultural citizenship and popular belonging. Uh, In the next episode of this podcast, uh, we'll do our traditional roundtable format and dive into what we've called their origin stories, uh, as well as their thoughts on the importance of Latinx studies education. So today, I am super excited to have three amazing guests with us, uh, all wonderful scholars. Uh, I really enjoyed having the chance to kind of chat with them before uh, before we, we started recording here. Um, and so let me just take a minute to introduce uh, to all three of these folks, uh, and then we'll we'll hear from them a bit more. So our first guest is Frederick Luis Aldama. Uh, Frederick is an academic and award-winning author of over 40 books, uh, including the International Latino Book Award and the Eisner Award uh, for Latinx Superheroes in Mainstream Comics. He is editor of the Trade Press Latinographics, 
creator of the first documentary on the history of Latinx superheroes, and co-founder and director of SoulCon, Brown, Black, and Indigenous Comics Expo and Symposium. This fall, Frederick will publish a Spanish translation of his kid's book, The Adventures of Chupacabra, Charlie, uh, as well as join UT Austin as the Jacob and Francis Sanger Massacre Chair in the Humanities and launch his Latinx Pop Lab. So thank you for joining us, Frederick. Thank you. Thank you. Um, our next guest is Adrian Burgos, Jr., um, he is professor of history at the University of Illinois, specializing in U.S. Latino history, sport history, and urban history. He's the author of Cuban Star, How One Negro League Owner Changed the Face of Baseball, and also Playing America's Game, Baseball, Latinos, and the Color Line, which won the Latina Latino Book Award from the Latin American Studies Association and was a Seymour Medal finalist for the Society of American Baseball Research. He has consulted on the National Baseball Hall of Fame's Viva Baseball exhibit, Smithsonian's Latinos and Baseball exhibit, and on numerous documentaries. He was a founding editor-in-chief of La Vida Baseball, a multi-platform digital brand in partnership with the Baseball Hall of Fame that produces daily content on Latinos and baseball through a cultural lifestyle perspective. So thanks for joining us, Adrian. Thanks, Daryl. It's good to be with all the panelists at long last. And I have to say real quickly, uh, just to kind of like poke at Renee a little bit while he's listening, your talk uh, focusing on the Houston Astro, on the Houston Astros, was so looking forward to it because Renee is the biggest Astros fan. <laughs> and with all the cheat, we had a lot of we had a lot of fun with him uh, last year with with the uh, with the bit of scandal that team <laughs> brought. Uh, our final guest today is Ed Morales who's an author and journalist who has written for The Nation, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Rolling Stone, and The Guardian. He was staff writer at The Village Voice and columnist at Newsday. Uh, he's author of Latinx, The New Force uh, in Politics and Culture, and Living in Spanglish. Uh, and most recently, he saw publication of his book, Fantasy Island, Colonialism, Exploitation, and the Betrayal of Puerto Rico, a book I'm very excited to read, as it's close to some of my current research interests. Uh, Morales wrote and directed Who's Barrio, uh, an award-winning documentary about the gentrification of East Harlem. Uh, he is lecturer at Columbia University Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race uh, and the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism. So thanks for joining us, Ed. Well, thank you for having me, and I'm very happy to be among um, this wonderful panel. And um, as a Mets fan, I would say that the Yankees also engaged in sign stealing. <laughs> okay, okay, we'll 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 get to this in the in the Q and A maybe. Um, so, uh, so again, thank you all for being here. Uh, it, it, I, I really look forward to uh, to what you have to say. Um, I think we can we can probably just go in the order in which I introduced you, if that's okay with everyone. Uh, so, uh, Frederick, that'll be you first, then Adrian, then Ed. Um, I'll, I'll, you know, as I told you before, you have you know about five minutes to kind of just provide an opening statement related to maybe what you would have talked about at the symposium, uh, maybe something a bit a bit different uh, or a bit broad or, or a bit more specific, whatever you want to do. Uh, and then we'll kind of come back around for more of a discussion uh, and a question that kind of ties things back in uh, to the broader themes of the symposium. So, uh, so Frederick, let's, let's hear it. Yeah, thank you, all of you. Uh, gosh, what illustrious company I am in. 
You know, I was going to um, just de deliver some of my work on Latinx pop culture, comics, TV, all of the stuff that we consume um, and many of us consume in ways that are maybe less um, self-aware, self-conscious, uh, and talk about, like, you know, some of the questions I've been asking myself actually since I was, a you know, a high schooler and especially since I was in college, um, you know, we, I grew up in the, in California, Central Valley. Um, we, I, I have a, you know, I, I don't want to get too much into the origin story, but it's important to know that my mom is Guatemalan, Irish American, and, uh, my dad is Mexican. I was born in Mexico city and there's a whole kind of background, but to that, but my, my mom went into education, bilingual education, precisely because of how I, we, we were treated as kids, me and my brother, and how language, um, which is something, of course, that Ed talks a lot about, but how language is racialized in this country and pejoratively so. But anyway, my point is that when I was in college, I started asking questions about things like, you know, how is this stuff that we consume, these stories that we consume in popular culture, how do they affect us? How do they shape our minds, our emotion systems, our actions and our activities, as well as our as well as our behaviors in the world? And I know that they do, but I wanted I didn't want to feel like I was doing anything fuzzy with this. I wanted to start to really analyze and get at the heart of it. And part of it is coming from you know, my work in narrative that I finally found as an undergraduate working with people like Barbara Christian and um, Alfred Artiaga, who really kind of got me into the importance of how we give shape to stories to open and wake us to new ways of seeing how we exist, but also coming from a strong sense of that, you know, my mom and my dad, um, my mom as an educator in, in the community and my dad, who stayed back in Mexico, um, to, you know, work with his comrades as a socialist revolutionary. Um, and so really kind of coming out of this space of education, wanting to know, to enrich our understanding, but also really deeply interested in where creativity comes from, how our imagination is built. And finally, you know, how can we interrogate critically, you know, what's being thrown at us in the mainstream? How, in fact the mainstream has willfully shaped us in stories as either not present or as caricatures at best and pejorative, negative stereotypes at worst, you know, and how this is in our lives, in our everyday lives, and how someone like me can come along and maybe begin to excavate and enrich that engagement with these stories, but also on the flip side to be mindful and constantly reminding us of the fact that we're not just these passive absorptive sponges as Latinos, Latinas, Latinxes, Chicanxes in this country. And we see this in our creator communities. We see this with us, with my panelists right now, all the things that we do. There is a lot of negative 
uh, representation out there. That is true. And even though we're 19% or so of the population, if you include our undocumented brothers and sisters, we're still only less than 3% represented. And that, that less than 3% is usually hypersexualized, um, bumbling buffoons, the kind of arriba, arriba, arriba of Speedy Gonzalez or his, you know, his cousin, right? Uh, Slowpoke Rodriguez, <laughs> you know, the, billboards that are out there that we see constantly, like the one for Tecate beer that says, you know, finally a cold Latina, right? Like, so, you know, or even this, the chocolate, the Mexican chocolate with the abuelita that we see in the aisles when we go shopping. And of course it says, you know, something like for people who like it, sweet, spicy, and steamy. I mean, we can't get away from all of these like deeply entrenched stereotypes of us. But I, you know, and then of course, cinema and movies and TV, and we see it constantly, the white optic that's been shaping us in ways that one dimensionalize and that in fact denigrate and do damage. You know, when we had Cheeto in chief in power, you know, those tweets that he was sending out and you realized, um, and this is the careful work of journalists like Ed and others out there, that he was actually, when he was talking about terrorists coming across the border and the descriptions and details that he was providing, a journalist realized that he was actually describing a scene from Sicario, Sicario 2, the film. And, you know, the the tape, the duct tape of the woman in the back and all that kind of stuff. And you're like, okay, yeah, it matters because you get someone with a platform like that who's watching a show, a narco film that's deliberately, you know, shaped to sensationalize and but then reprojecting it as fact. Right. So we do, you know, lo- lots of real important issues with the way this is kind of circulated and put into the world. But then there's also stuff that we've kind of become sort of habituated to. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking about Chips, the recreated film, Chips, and maybe you guys saw this, Michael Pena, and I. we all love Michael Pena. I think, you know, it, you know, shows like Ant or films like Ant Man and the you know is like a Michael Pena film. It's just we you know we still have that white optic going, um, so we have to have the Paul Rudd um, character. Oh, I, okay, yeah. And so you know, this hypersexualized Michael Pena in a role where he's a compulsive masturbator. We have Superman flying across the border to Tijuana to save a little girl from a burning building that happens to be on Day of the Dead. I mean, crazy stuff. But we are doing awesome things as Latinx creators in, in the comics book spaces, in TV spaces, as writers in front of the camera and behind the camera. Um, so I'm also here to celebrate all the really amazing things that we do in our community and that we're putting out in the world as a kind of counterforce to all of this negative stuff. So thank you. Thank you so much. What a great start. Uh, Adrian? Uh, thanks, Daryl. You know, also, Frederick, you, you touch on a couple of the, the dynamics I wanted to address. You know, so apologies to Renee. I have switched a little bit of what I was going to focus on from stealing signs and stealing lives to uh, hidden in plain sight. And, you know, I, I've done a lot of reflecting due to the Black Lives Matter protests and protests of police violence over the last 
year and a half that have gained so much focus. And then even how baseball, Major League Baseball, had you know the symbolic gestures of paying homage to um, Black Lives Matter. And one of the things for me is thinking about Latino stories and the presence of particularly of Afro-Latinos in baseball and how they have become hidden in plain sight. One of the really fascinating things to me as someone who's, yes, a baseball fan, a baseball historian, I'm a fan by inheritance from my my abuelitas um, who loved baseball. And for me, you know, yes, for many Puerto Ricans, the story starts with Roberto Clemente, but it also actually goes back to the story of Mini Minoso as the first Afro-Latino to play in the major leagues, breaking a color barrier in the, in the aftermath of Jackie Robinson. Um, the, the story of September 1st, 1971, when the Pittsburgh Pirates had an all-Black lineup and how some have talked about it as it was an all-African-American lineup when in the reality of it is that you have Roberto Clemente, Puerto Ricano. You had Amani Sanguillen and Renny Stinette, Panameños. You had also Jackie Hernandez, Cubano, all of them Afro-Latino. And that story then becomes even more complex to thinking about the presence of Afro-Latinos today. So as a baseball fan, if you looked at Major League Baseball over the last two decades, the major representation of Blackness in baseball have been Latinos, Dominicanos, Venezolanos, Puerto Ricanos, Cubanos. And yet the stories that were being told about what it meant to be Black in baseball focus very much on African-Americans and did not go to a, a player like Francisco Lindor, now with the New York Mets, then with the Cleveland baseball team. Lindor as a Black Puerto Rican who identifies very much as a Black Puerto Rican and how his experience, he's not just Black Puerto Rican, he is a diaspora Rican. He's someone who spent half of his childhood in Caguas, Puerto Rico, and the other half near Orlando in Florida. And his experience then, he was a teenager, or he was a young man, maybe not a teenager, when, when Trayvon Martin was killed in Florida. You know, and those experiences as a young Black man and so I had asked a couple of uh, journalists, uh, um, white American journalists, like, how come you to go to Lindor and ask him about his sentiments about Black Lives Matter and what it means to be a black man in the United States? And they hesitated and said, well, would he have something to say about it? And I said, that's precisely the reason you asked them. And so part of the story of Afro-Latinos in baseball, as well as in broader Latina Latino studies and in, in broader um, U.S. American studies has been about how they have become hidden in plain sight, often submerged within a discourse of Latinos, of brownness, and the need to really further complicate our stories and to highlight the realities of race and of language and of culture. Um, we were It slapped us in the face just last week when the Seattle Mariners CEO and President Kevin Mather um, critiqued the use of translators for his Japanese and Latino players, critiqued Julio Rodriguez, who is a Black Dominican rising star with the Seattle Mariners for supposedly being loud and not speaking English very well. When Rodriguez himself had hosted a show on the Seattle Mariners YouTube channel in English. And the final point here is, 
So you have a Latino, a young, just past his teenage year Dominican, who has come through the effort of learning English to the extent that he can host a show on YouTube. And even he's critiqued for his not assimilating enough, not speaking English well. If that's the impact on someone like Rodriguez, think about the impact on those Latino players, other Latinos, Dominicanos in baseball and outside of baseball who don't have the facility with languages that Rodriguez himself has. And those are the stories that get hidden in plain sight under other discourses and what you know I'm working towards on my next project. That sounds amazing. I've got now I've got I've got questions that are that are uniting both of you. I want to hear from from Ed now, um, and then we'll we'll get going on on a conversation. Ed. Oh uh, hi yeah. So I wanted to follow up a little bit on this you know talk about race and you know all of the what's happened with Black Lives Matter and how it's affected um, discourse about um, Latinx. You know um, you know it's almost like the the you know the the lat the Latino uh, broader label is uh, really being questioned um, right now, um, and uh, it's I find it like similar to the equal questioning of the use of um, the phrase uh, "people of color," um, because within the Latinx community, then you start getting these hierarchies of like who's been discriminated more against, and not all, not everyone shares in the same level of uh, discrimination. And then there's a lot of invocation about mestizaje um, <clears throat> discourse and its attachment to um, the false claims of racial democracy in um, Latin America. And, um, but, you know, um, I mean, one thing that I've been struggling with is um, that I think that it's important to uh, refuse the idea of mestizaje as a valid way to structure Latinidad in the U.S. But I think it's equally important to see that mestizaje does not necessarily determine um, Latinidad and that um, Latinx people in the U.S. Uh, have many examples um, that show that, you know, they're moving away from the racial democracy narrative. And I think it still can be a unifying um, thing for Latinos or Latinx people to to coalesce around. But I think that there has to be more work, you know, as Adrian brings up about focusing on that. There's like been a whole bunch of new uh, scholarship, you know, uh, Adrian referred, uh, that phrase you referred is the title of a new book by Erica Edwards about um, Argentines and uh, Black uh, Argentines, you know, uh, which is, uh, I'm still trying to get through it you know, and, and I've been talking to my students a lot about how, you know, this semester, how uh, there were so many examples of uh, Latinos coming together um, to identify with their racial difference, almost as if coming into contact with the black-white binary of the United States um, allowed them to see the fallacy of the the racial democracy uh, discourse. Um, and, um, you know, I've also been using uh, Arlene Davila's book about um, uh, Latino Zinc to show how this, you know, uh, really counterproductive idea of Latinidad, which is whitewashing, you know, has been, was first constructed uh, about 40 years ago. And now, you know, I understand why a lot of my students feel this way, because, you know, the stuff that I talk about is now ancient history to them. Um, 
you know, and then uh, also trying to focus a little bit about the parallels between um, the the broader identity and and ideas about queer identity um, that Jose Munoz brought up and um, in his uh, belief that uh, Latinidad was a feeling together in difference, which is something that is parallel to um, queer identity. And, and, uh, and, and these, this idea of uh, essentializing Latino um, identity, like uh, what happened with Jessica Krug and how, you know, a lot of people haven't commented that, you know, she did this by over-essentializing the identity. And so, you know, the idea of Latinx identity, challenging identity itself, I think is really important. But um, just to squeeze in like uh, more stuff about uh, Afro-Latino identity, um, in in the recent piece that I did for the Times about um, Johnny Pacheco, and I regret not emphasizing it more like, but in, in the aftermath of it, I realized that Johnny Pacheco was this real conduit for um, Afro-Latino vocalists like uh, Celia Cruz and Pete Oconde Rodriguez and, um, uh, geez, uh, oh yeah, Cheo Feliciano. Like all of them were closely associated with him. And I realized that even within the Salsero head world, you know, that's not really um, talked about enough. So, you know, I think that uh, the the Latino identity, uh, as uh, as you guys have said, you know, is something that's imposed on as well as we construct ourselves. And, you know, to just secede from it, you know, means giving up control uh, of something that's going to be uh, placed on you anyway. So I'll uh, finish my comments there. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so through all of our programming for Imagining Latinidades, I mean, I think that yeah, I, I love your opening statements because you you hit on so many of the themes that have been central to the conversations that Ariana, Renee, and I have had now. Now it feels like forever um, because it was a while ago that we actually like, you know, started working on this and su submitting it to, uh, you know, for funding and all that kind of stuff. Um but you know one of the one of the kind of key terms right in the name of 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 what we've been doing is belonging and that's something that in different ways and from different angles all of you raised in your opening statements um and you know it seems to me that uh that there are um and there are, there are perhaps infinite ways, right? Infinite angles from which to approach this, uh, this notion of belonging. But two really jump out at me, uh, in, in what you all said. One is the ways in which, um, uh, belonging is structured in relationship to, uh, kind of, you know, uh, more formal notions of citizenship and like national belonging, right? And so we can talk about the ways in which, uh, you know, media, uh, advertising. I, you know, I, lo I love the kind of like, you know, the food product examples from you, Frederick. So like, oh my gosh, these are, these are everywhere, right? When you walk down the, the, the supermarket aisle. Um, uh, so, so the ways in which all of these different kinds of uh, of kind of representations circulate and create uh, uh, notions of belonging and unbelonging, right? Uh, but then also we've got belonging that's formed kind of from the from the inside, right? From within uh, Latinx communities and creators, right? And so you know whether that's from artistic creators. Um, uh, 
like like you were talking about, Frederick, whether that's uh, activists who are challenging uh, and questioning kind of what is contained within the label of of Latinx, um, and and whether that's and whether that's kind of the, the 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 fundamental questionings from within Latinx communities about race and about what kind of what and who counts right as uh, as Latinx uh, and 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 Afro Latinx uh, within you know within this great example of baseball players. Uh, and so I'm wondering if, if I can take both of these angles and, and, and ask you, like, what do you think is the relationship uh, between these different modes of belonging, right? Uh, the kind of like forms of unbelonging that are created uh, through these static and stale forms of representation, right, that exclude uh, Latinx folks broadly, uh, and 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 Black Latinx folks specifically, right, from being understood as part of, and I'm doing the scare quotes here, part of America, right, the United States of America, part of, but also part of Latinidad, right. Um, so, like, yeah, wh- how do you put these? How do you kind of like talk through? Uh, the implications of that that form of belonging, but then also the other this other kind of notion of belonging that's more grassroots, that's kind of part of uh, what's happening within various uh, and diverse Latinx communities. And this is a question for whoever wants to <laughs> to start answering it, and we can kind of go from there. It's a great question, Daryl. And one of the things that it reminds me about is the ways in which the racialization of of accents and language reproduces the sense of Latinos as perpetual foreigners. Even as they become bilingual, more, more skilled in English language communication, the racialization of accents becomes a way in which they're kind of posited on the outside of belonging. They can't quite become American. Again, I use scare quotes there. Mm-hmm. And thinking about Julio Rodriguez and then thinking about Roberto Clemente and the ways in which certain ideas of Anglicization is imposed. So Roberto becomes for some Bob because they have difficulty saying Roberto. Um, and so the flip side of that is in what not just Julio Rodriguez, but what Pedro Martinez and Big Papi and so many Latino baseball players had encountered where people would poke fun at their English accent when they speak in English or their Spanish accent when they speak in English. Um, And on the flip side of it is what's interesting is that Latinos are seeing these efforts by the ballplayers to learn English to communicate in different languages, and they are proud of those efforts because they're showing that we have the ability, the capability, and are able to do so. And that is a counterpoint. And last point here, and I'll I'll be quiet, was what's interesting also is that it's representation of these in the media. How does it plays out in sports media? How does it plays out in news media and in Spanish language media? And we see in all of those the place that Afro-Latinos often occupy as a place to poke fun of, are who of who we are, of blackness, and less often as a place of embracing the reality of like this is who we are. Yeah, well, you know, Latinos always are citizenship is always in question. I mean, with the continual rhetoric uh, of 
you know, making us um, other in terms of not being from here. And the, I just wrote a thing for the CNN opinion about use of the word alien, and I go into a long detail about that and science fiction, scary things. But another thing we said, I didn't mention that uh, the um, the Latino community can marginalize the indigenous people as well. There's a whole bunch of people coming to California from Michoacan and, and, um, and Oaxaca who uh, don't really speak Spanish that well. So there's another assumption about, you know, people from Mexico and Central America being Hispanic. And um, so all of that we have to keep in mind. But, you know, at the same time, you know, because uh, there's a kind of a unified, you know, the, 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 the notion of alien, you know, as I wrote in my piece too, um, affects even Puerto Ricans when they're mistaken for Mexicans at airports. And that happens quite a bit, you know, and then harassed about their citizenship. So again, it's something that should tie people together. I just want to jump in and say, I grew up Puerto Rican in Western Washington state in the 1980s. (laughs) Um, So like I I was always, what you're saying right now, like, and, and Adrian, what you're saying too about language, I mean, both these things really speak to me because I was always racialized as other, right? But people had a hard time placing exactly what that other was because there there were there were so few Puerto Ricans around, you know, in Puyallup, Washington, mm-hmm. um, and so few Latinos around in, in, in Puyallup, Washington, that you know it often it often be like you know third on the list of what <laughs> of what insult someone would want to throw at me. But the and the language thing is really interesting because like, you know, I I have a I have a really hard time with uh with speaking spanish in part because i went through like four years of speech therapy uh in elementary school mostly as best as i can tell to rid me of my rural puerto rican accent that i picked up from my Mm -hmm. mom uh so you know so i said so i have a hard time you know because of those those various kind of you know forms of biopolitical engagement uh uh you know it still is 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 an issue for me, right, Frederick? You're 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 over you're over there looking like you you've been thinking hard about saying something here. So I'll I'll be quiet. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> just to add to all of the incredible insights of you, my colleagues here. Um, you know, this this sense of kind of permanent, you know, temporariness and this you know, who's allowed to feel, say, a measure of belonging or citizenry and um, and then what's at stake, as you guys just talked about, you know, in terms of, um, of um, you know, our indigenous brothers and sisters are, you know, Afro-Latinx, African-American, Black brothers and sisters and how there's a systematic dispossession and systematic kind of holding up of them as as um not desirable subjects as ed mentioned the kind of alien subject right the the undesirable and so you know someone like for me in pop you know latinx pop culture uh, someone like Alberto Ledesma and his Diary of a Reluctant Dreamer, which I was, you know, I've deliberately launched my Latino graphics series with. 
someone who really kind of digs in and shares those stories of constant surveillance and feeling of unbelonging and inviting our new readers and listeners uh, to into those spaces so they don't maybe feel quite as lonely and weird and alien. And at the same time, a real kind of proactive measure to draw awareness to the mechanisms of the state apparatus that constantly surveillance and create these models of the model minority or the assimilable, the desirable versus the unassimilable, undesirable. And those are usually, um, uh, you know, I'll just be straight up there, you know, within the casta system that we've inherited, uh, darker skinned, you know, Afro-Latinx, Latinxes, you know, the ones that are more um, kind of identified in and through the media as undesirable are those that are, you know, um, unassimilable according to the kind of media and the state apparatus out there. The ones that are, you know, given the kind of legitimate space at the table, you know, Yes, they're stereotyping, but they're usually lighter skinned. I mean, you know, um, we have Gloria in Modern Families, a great example of that, right? Um, and then, you know, finally, we do have writers and shows, though, that I just want to end comic books that are really turning the table, not just Diary of a Reluctant Dreamer as a comic book, but also shows like Hintified that really put under the scope exactly, you know, how this has become a natural way of existing where our communities are set separated, and we are even put, um, set against one another because of this surveillance and this system that says you, yes, can be a belonging, you can have that feeling of belonging, even if it's a permanent sense of temporary belonging, but you definitely are not going to be allowed to have that, even that seat at the table. So where do we move um from here, right? Where do we go? Where do we look as we move toward the future and start imagining uh, those various uh, kinds of negotiated uh, uh, connections to belonging uh, that both, you know, that both kind of tap into access, right, to uh, to the kind of visibility and positive visibility. By uh, you know, by by folks outside of Latinx communities, um, but also are still trying to build those modes of belonging within Latinx communities, right? Which which you know, as, as you all have been talking about, right, are themselves exclusionary spaces sometimes too. Um, so, yeah, how do we? And I know there's not there's not like one answer to that to that question um but what are some of the things that 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 we should be looking out for and looking forward to as these conversations and issues um uh and and markets right start to evolve in the coming years well i think that you know um defying you know borders and between genres and and language and things like that, um, presenting like intersectional narratives for people that they can understand. Like, uh, you know, I've been using the AOC as this example of someone who is consciously 
you know, portraying herself as having multiple social positions, multiple levels of identification and, you know, like, um, bad bunny doesn't like, he doesn't really sing and he doesn't really rap. And he's sort of like, uh, involving, you know, he's creating this different idea about being a musician. I don't think it's any uh, accident that, uh, you know, the reggaeton, uh, Latin trap, which is highly mixed, um, is now the dominant, um, pop genre. So yeah, I think mixed narratives, uh, moving away from decentralized narratives, which is like, unfortunately it's like against the uh, direction of the market and the, you know, trying to, you know, uh, tap what your consumer preferences are, but in a way it's kind of revolutionary. <laughs> yeah. What, what Ed said really, uh, strikes home with me because thinking about, and, and this goes back to discussion of Arlene Davila's work in Latinos Inc., the creation of this marketing idea of who Latinos are, who Latinas are, and how many are challenging that. Language has a great role within that. Um, when I was working with La Vida Baseball, one of the biggest challenges was people, when they hear Latino baseball, they think Spanish language. And when we do a demographic survey of Latinos in the U.S., the overwhelming majority of the population are third generation plus. But the space that it occupies within media in terms of marketing, in terms of advertising, is they often advertise to the most recent arrivals. And now we're seeing some more movement into looking at, um, at second, third fourth generation. And in that context, you know, someone like AOC is very much should be seen as the typical Latina, Latino, Latinx individual because of the fluidity of moving between languages and even thinking beyond, you know, the typical spaces that we occupy. Um, and for me, it's, it is interesting to think about, we go from Vito Marc Antonio representing the Latinos in Harlem to someone like AOC representing Latinos in the Bronx and parts of Northern Manhattan. And, and that being a woman representing us, you know, in a certain sense it is fascinating. Um, and then, of course, we can't forget how much heat she takes for presenting these ideas, this different notion of Latinidad, of politics and all that. Yeah, this is, you know, it's really interesting. We need to do more to amplify our complexities at home, in our education spaces, and of course in our scholarship, in our work. Um, You know, there was the big controversy at the Emmys when, you know, people were up in arms because no Latinxes, Latinos had won an Emmy. And we're like, hold on, no, we we did actually, uh, Jarell Jerome did. And so let's take a step back and now let's think about like why he isn't being identified as Afro-Latinx, right? Um, the other day I was binging Saved by the Bell, the new, the new um, recreation. And I loved that the character Aisha is played by a Dominicana, you, you know, young actor uh, from the Bronx. And, you know, she breaks into like Spanish just like that, fluent, getting to Adrian's point. 
And suddenly, like the writing itself, we don't need to go to the internet and look at a bio. The writing of that character itself destabilizes and troubles all of those rigid uh, schemas that the mainstream perpetuates about our identities, our experiences, and our communities. And we need more of that. And we also need to amplify that. You know, we need it because our communities, you know, I created this thing called Laser, the Latinx Space for Enrichment Research, where I have hubs all over Columbus to work with the, the Latinx kids. But it is very actively open to our African-American, our Black, you know, students as well, our Somali students, um, to, de to make natural the coming together of these communities constantly and to celebrate these coming togethers constantly. Because guess what? In a place like Columbus, and this is a microcosm of the U.S., how many times can we point to uh, our Black and our Latinx and our Blatinx and, you know, communities coming together to celebrate, to be joyful, to empower and look to the future and to take a good look at how, you know, our families and our families' histories and our lineage and our ancestry. Not very many. We need to continue to clear those spaces in all that we do. Great. Thank you so much. I think that's a perfect place to end for today. Uh, thank you all so much for being with me and talking about the work that you're doing uh, and specifically talking about uh, about it around this theme of cultural citizenships and popular belonging. I can't wait to talk with you about your origin stories and the the value of, of, uh, of Latinx studies. So thank you so much for being with me. It's great being here. Thank you, all of you, Adrian, Ed, Daryl. Thank you so much. So, uh, so next episode will be that roundtable podcast um, that'll that'll come out uh, probably about a week after this one. Uh, so, uh, so if you're not already subscribed to the Imagining Latini Daddies podcast, now's a great time to do that. So, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever uh, you get your podcast episodes from. Subscribe to our podcast. And, you know, while you're at it, go ahead and give us five stars or thumbs up or whatever rating system they use. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on Twitter. Uh, we're at Imagining Lat for the podcast. Uh, and you can also shoot us an email at podcast at imaginingLatinidades.com. Um, so thank you so much for listening. Please check the show notes for uh, for links or citations or anything like that uh, that, that you might have wanted to check again uh, from, the, from this episode. So uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to my guests for being here, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>